Okay. Uh, welcome back. Um, so now uh, we're going to move on to all questions that you've had throughout the day that you've been writing down, no doubt. So that's from uh, marginal utility and unit price, marginal productivity of labour, and marginal productivity, productivity of capital. Okay, Louis. Well, first, first of all, before it being a question, I'd like to comment on the first lecture. Um, I think, Professor, what you presented is mind-blowing. This fact is very important. And um, you, you mentioned in your lecture that how <coughs> Menge is the father of deductive economics. As opposed to inductive. Right. Or... Yeah, we know. Uh, measuring averages and whatever. Yeah. <laughs> well, I would like to suggest, or I guess my question is, um, because of all the um, personalities involved with the use of what the word Austrian economics, would you consider changing the name of your school instead of New Austrian School of Economics? Call it the School of Deductive Economics. Um, um, probably not. The reason is, it took a long time to come to the decision that rather than calling it Gold Standard University or Gold Standard University Live, which was the, late, the last name, we uh, decided that we wanted to challenge the establishment Austrians. Okay. That's the mainstream Austrians mainly represented by the people at Auburn, Alabama. But there are others elsewhere. And too many changes in the name is probably not good for the cause. That's one reason. The other reason is that deductive economics is less precise. Well, we, we have something which is already recognized, the Austrian school. And if I say new Austrian school, that's a message in itself. When you say deductive economics, a lot of people will not even know what you are talking about. Because you have to explain the difference. And there's a, a lot of background to that because Menger was also a fighter. He had to fight the German mainstream at the time. And at the end of the 19th century, the German mainstream was known as the uh, historic or historic school of economics. They uh, said that there is no such thing as deductive economics. There is only collecting historical facts, putting the data on and then comparing and also taking statistics, taking averages with all that, you know. But uh, Menger was up in arms against this. And 
first he approached them very gingerly, the Germans, and he was Austrian, and these were Germans, you see. Now, of course, they spoke the same language, they used the same Gothic alphabet and all that, that's true, but there was a big chasm, there's a big... Uh, uh, difference between their approaches. And Menger was very polite. He just tried very gently to point out to the Germans, the historic, the historic school in Germany, uh, Schmoller was one of the main representatives. Uh, in Germany of the historic school. And there were many others too. In fact, practically all the German universities at that time were representing the historic school. Very little else, very little, or well, nothing else. I, I am, I'm not an expert on history of economic thought, but the fact is that Menger was very polite he even, or Rocher, Rocher was another one, and he actually dedicated one of his main books to Rocher. You know, so I, I mean, he wanted to have a peaceful discussion, a, a, an exchange of ideas, a debate, a real debate, and if they couldn't come to an agreement, then just continue the debate at another time, at another place. But there's no point because the German historic school took a very antagonistic position and they rejected any idea and they ridiculed deductive economism. So I would say if you want to change the name you would have to explain all that. As shoot this too much. So I, I, I appreciate your suggestion, but I don't think this is timely. Perhaps later, when, <laughs> if we succeed, if we could attract more people to seminars like this one, then we could. But it's a, to my way of thinking, it's a little bit premature. Let's just uh, keep what we have and work from here and hope for the best because with this uh, uh, change in the market sentiment which is happening right now, uh, I think more and more people will pay attention. Oh, what's going on? What's <coughs> happening to you? I mean, you know, gold had an all-time high before last year, eight, well, no, a couple of years ago, $800, and then it doubled, and went through just like that, and now it might go to three times 800 next time, you know, but people will pay more and more attention and say, well, the government doesn't explain what's going on, but something is going on, so they are looking, searching for the truth. And sooner or later they will come. I have an introduction to uh, this uh, session.
you, you have it, I think, the very first page. And I suggest that the Austrian school has a negative approach to gold. I mean, they pay the lip service, there's no problem there. But the approach is negative, and it's partly because of Mises, but even more so because of Hayek. Hayek almost goes as far as saying that we have the gold standard, which is a necessary evil. These are almost, well, he didn't say that. It, but, but, but the implication was that, because he says, if we had honest and trustworthy governments, we wouldn't need a gold standard, which is a negative approach to justify the gold standard because somebody has a fault. That's a negative approach. I would like to advocate a positive approach to gold. And my answer, and I have that, uh, my answer is you look at the con point of contact between the protosphere and the logosphere. And one of the most important points of contact is between gold on the one hand and interest on the other. Gold belongs to the protosphere and interest belongs to the logosphere. You've got to understand what interest is and that's a mental thing. It's not nature given as such. It is a result of human action and human reasoning. So uh, the positive theory of gold, if you want to call it that, would not criticize the gold standard, oh, we only have it because the governments are dishonest, which is true, but that's not why we have the gold standard, and that's not why we consider the gold standard as a very successful institution over hundreds and hundreds of years, but because there is a point of contact between gold and interest. And it's a mechanism. And gold is the biggest cogwheel in that mechanism. If you take it out, the whole thing collapses. And we have even had to disaster, like right now. Zero interest rate policy. Serp. Yeah? Mm -hmm. Z-I-R-P. They even think yeah. <laughs> you know? It's incredible. It's really incredible. But, and it's destroying our civilization. For two reasons. It causes capital destruction and it cuts the ground from underneath the pensioners and the pension funds and all the insurance companies which pay annuities. People took a lifetime to contribute to their annuity fund and then by the time they want to draw, went up in smoke. Terrible. And that's, people don't realize what's going on, but that's going to happen. 
that's going to happen. The so-called baby boomers who are retiring now will very soon find out that their funds are gone, are finished. So that would be my answer. I don't want to take too much time, mm -hmm. <laughs> so let's see. Yep. Hi. Yes, my name is Diego. I'm from Panama. Okay. I'm very happy to be here. I actually have three questions. I don't know if it's yeah, no. okay. Cool. The first question is on the concepts of uh, protosphere and logosphere. It seems like the division is very similar to uh, Hayek's uh, sensorial order when he ranks uh, the increasing orders of complexity of the world. So mm -hmm. the most mm -hmm. basic is the physical world and the chemical, biological, and then he has the, I don't remember how he calls it, but the human mind world where things are much more complex, especially when you incorporate relationships with other individuals. Yeah. Um, and so the, the point where these worlds uh, meet, so to speak, is uh, uh, when, when humans deal with uh, uh, limited resources or uh, when they exchange with each other at the unit. And also it's similar to the concept of marginalism. So I just want to ask you, how was this related or different to that idea? That's, that's one question. I don't know if maybe I should wait. For oh, yeah, yeah, let's deal with this question okay. first. I would say uh, this is one of the last books of Hayek, isn't it? I do remember what period he wrote. It's not an early. It's, it's a very mature, a very mature thought. It's wonderful, and I admire it. I, I'm not, generally speaking, an admirer of Hayek, basically because of his stand on, on gold. I think it's shaky. But that's an earlier, when he talks about, um, he calls it nationalization of money or something. He, he talks about... Uh, competition of banks, free banking, and let the market decide. If it's gold, fine. If it's silver, fine. And if it's copper or platinum or tungsten, <laughs> what you can <laughs> put into gold bars because the weight is very close, it's fine. I, I don't think this is a sound idea. There is, uh, his, uh, there is, gold is very special, whether we like it or not. We just have to think. So, um, you know, but the, the very last few books which he wrote and published, I think it's a series, and um, I, I admire. And that would be my answer to your question, that you, be, you have to be selective, but but roughly, I would say, his ideas at the end of his life are, are wonderful. Okay. 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 Now let's go on with the second question. Um, the second question, um, you mentioned that it was difficult to measure the proportion between the productivity or marginal productivity of capital and labor in a specific production. But could it be possible to measure this by, say, going back to the previous level where capital was not used, say, cutting paper by hand and seeing how much paper you can cut in an hour by hand and then seeing how much more paper you can cut 
by adding uh, the scissor, so to speak? I mean, could, could, could that create a way you can calculate the proportion? So how is that again? There's the scissor and there's the hand. And uh, they both have to cooperate to bring up a product. And then the question of productivity arises. So what is the question? You mentioned I, I, can, I think I can answer that one. Oh, okay. oh yeah, go ahead. Um, you're, you have the end. I mean, in that example is, is cutting Paper. a silk hanky okay, together or whatever it is and the means, or whatever. It's a bit unfair to do that, generally, what you're suggesting, okay? Because if you consider the means, getting from A to B is an end, mm -hmm. and that's being satisfied by a horse versus a jumbo jet. Mm -hmm. And if you try and, you can't compare a jumbo jet to a horse, but you still need to get from, that would be a huge improvement, mm -hmm. you know. But there is no, um, there is no way of sort of doing that objectively. It's obvious that it's an improvement, but because you can't, you cannot, you cannot extrapolate how means will evolve. You, all, you're, all you're sure of is the end. You know? So in that sense, how, how do you incorporate into this theory uh, occasions when a certain uh, tool or machine requires more than one worker to operate? So, for example, um, I don't know, a certain excavator that needs, you know, five different people working in the machine. Either you have five workers working it, or you don't. So um, Things don't usually work in that way, that you throw away an old machine which is operated by one worker, and the next better machine has to be operated by five. Uh, things are much more staggered in, in reality. But remember what I said in my lecture. I said that we keep either the number of the workers, hired workers, unchanged, and then we look at the, the ranking of machines or capital, uh, material factors of production is the word which Mises uses because he wants to be very precise because there are non-material factors of course human ingenuity and so on but you keep the number of workers unchanged or you keep the machinery and then you can hire and fire okay and that's how you can assign productivity to individual workers on the one hand and individual machinery on the other. It's too big a jump from one machine operated by one person to a, a better machine operated by five or, you know, this is, the, the, you, you have to go step by step and it's almost continuous, the change. Well, that's the idea, anyhow. Okay. So that was the second question? Yes. And you have a third one? Yes. Well, let's uh, see. It's the last one. Um, I, I think it was already answered, but it was um, maybe in the, in the discussion we just had. But it has to do with the idea of falling interest rates. I am assuming that when you mean it destroys capital, it's when it's artificially lower. 
Not when it's yeah. an increasing savings rate. You take that? Yeah. It, it's it's um, not if it's for a natural reason, of course. But then you have to say, if, if it was a natural reason for it falling, then there would be homeostatic processes with between the gold and the bond market, which would mean that the inclination for it to fall will keep on falling as it's falling, basically. It's when you're forcing it to go down and down and down and down, geometrically, you know, yeah. Okay. Now, let me ask a question. Oh, you have a question? Please, no, no, no. go I ahead. Please, go ahead. Just ask, what do you uh, that means like uh, it's a biological term and that means um, sort of like when your body gets too hot there are, there are uh, response mechanisms in the body that cool you down and when you get too cold vice versa basically. Okay. I don't know what the German word for... Yeah, no. Gold, the relationship between gold and interest is, uh, is like a homeostatic pro pro process in the sense that if it gets too high then uh, people start liquidating capital in favour of bonds. So the interest rate comes down. It's, it's an arbitrage. It's an arbitrage. And the arbitrageur is the marginal Entrepreneur. Marginal entrepreneur. All, all I'm saying is that gold and interest, okay, the, the whole concept together means that if it's falling, it's not going to continue falling, and if it's rising, it won't continue rising. The interest rate. The interest rate. Okay, the idea is to make it as stable as possible, the interest rate. That's under a gold standard. Under a gold standard. Under today's conditions. Rudy? Can I put two cents worth? Yeah. It's like a feedback mechanism. It's built into the market, into the, into the marketplace. People will buy what they see, they will do what they choose, and this takes care of all this. There has to be no external input to control interest rates or to push them up, push them down. This is all artificial. Whereas inherent in a proper free market system, these things come about automatically. It's, 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 it's in there. It doesn't have to be put in externally. And any external pressure, for example, if Bernanke decides to try to push down interest rates, to whose benefit? And to what level? And who decides? And all this other stuff. So it becomes an artificial input to the system, a distortion, fraudulent, corrupt. Whereas what the market comes up with is millions and millions and millions of human actors doing their own thing and doing their, their buying and selling, and out of this arises this homeostatic business that is to keep itself stable. And exactly like he said, the human body will take care of, if it's getting too hot, you don't have to go and pour water on yourself, or Bernanke has to cool off the economy or, or pick it up. It's, the, it's built in. Um, All right. Yeah, no. I've never heard an explanation. No, this was just the question which added to my list of questions. Okay. Oh, okay, go on. Uh, now, I, I would like... A way of describing how interest rates, um, well, how interest rates and, and 
Do you do you have a, more questions? Yes, yes. Okay. Yes, yes, yes. He has a couple of more questions, Professor. Okay. From him? Yeah. Okay. okay. Yeah. 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 Um, uh, first of all, uh, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm just, I, I consider myself a student of the Mises Institute and uh, specifically quite the Soto in Madrid, and, uh, and I find it very nice that you, you call us mainstream because it gives, <laughs> gives, gives us the feeling that you know we're actually maybe <laughs> mainstream, although that in this world, of course, is not the case at the moment. Um, uh, yeah, concerning the, um, yeah, the, the, the depiction of the quantity theme of money, I, I, I find this is, 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 is just, just as we would, we would, we would see it. Um, the, um, concerning the marginal productivity of labor, as you outlined, I, I find Jesus would agree, and, and I, I would see no reason why Jesus would agree. Um, uh, Mr. Jaitley, concerning the, the um, Mises' view of interest rate, and that he considered time to be objective and therefore not correct, I don't really understand what you mean with that. Um, I, uh, we we uh, in, in, in definitely see that Mises sees that, that interest rate is something entirely uh, sub subjective. It's, it's determined by the market participants and depending how much somebody wants yeah. for, for uh, lending out a certain units of gold or, or any kind of money, how much they want to get it back in the future. That, that is the interest rate and that is entirely subjective. You don't start... Um, first of all, I read a lot of the comments that people said that Ludwig von Mises thinks that interest is a market phenomenon because he said it is here. Not. Is. Or is is and there will be and they you know, they say that Mises did say it was a market phenomenon. And how did they justify that? They were by giving a, just a one sentence quote from somewhere or other. I'll, I'll show it to you afterwards. Okay. So I mean, all right. He might have said he thought interest was a market phenomenon. Okay, but the whole but did point. Did he really say that? I I I would not. I don't. I don't. I'll have to check the quotes. Yeah, check. Sure. I'll have to check the quotes. But people can say one thing and, and do something else. Yeah. Now, a market is a mental concept. It means free exchange. Okay, and don't confuse that with the object of a market. Okay. What you're actually doing to get the free exchange. In that sense. Okay, it's like you should not confuse wealth and gold. Wealth is a mental thing, and gold is that object that occupies it. That's all. Okay. So, um, free exchange means, as Menger said, that you will have, as he observed, two prices. Okay, you do not start from just one end, time, okay, and then build up a theory. Okay, and the reason, would I be incorrect in saying that he did that, Professor? He started with time preference as the... Yeah, okay. and actually he did use the method of averaging because he says time preference is... He acknowledges that there is Scrooge at one end of the spectrum and the prodigal son at the other. Scrooge is penny-pinching, and the prodigal son is throwing away his paternal 
uh, heritage with both hands, just the up, other extreme. And, and what he means by marginal preference is something in between. But how to find that? Well, he says, uh, perhaps he doesn't say it, but he implies, he just waves his hands. Obviously, in the market, there is going to be an average. So that's a violation of Menger's principle. You, you must not use averaging when there is a contact between the uh, protosphere and the logosphere. It has to be the method of marginalism. So he never uses the term marginal time preference. He, he never uses that. And I think he should. Because it's not an averaging method, it's a marginalism, typical, it's a, it's a very good, and, and the, you think of the marginal bondholder and so on, his arbitrage between the bond market and the gold market. Mm -hmm. And that escaped him completely, so... So you need this averaging, yeah. the interest rate is objective. Objective, uh, well, doing an average is objective, uh, but no, the, 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 the method is incorrect. That's, 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 I can, what I meant by he has time as his starting point is that he, he doesn't, I'm not saying that if you, have, if you have something as your starting point, you assume that that is somehow objective in a kind of way. Okay, so I'm, all, all I'm assuming is that he must have thought that time is time. He postulates what he calls originary interest. Mm. That everybody uh, puts a higher value on a present good than he would or she would put uh, on the same good when you consider it as a future good. Mm. But actually in, in the spring session I, I mentioned several examples where this breaks down. One uh, typical example is ice in the summer and ice in the winter. Ice in the summer has huge value and utility and ice in the winter is a, is a nuisance. You don't want more of it under any circumstances. But uh, there, there were better counterexamples. So I would say uh,